thank you very much. Uh, very, very uh, great pleasure for me today to welcome you all here today. Not only a great pleasure to welcome uh, colleagues and uh, staff members of, of the Open University itself, but very nice to welcome visitors from other universities and in particular uh, friends and family of our inaugurees. Uh, a very warm welcome to you all. It has to be warm in here because it sure as hell isn't warm out there, but um, um, a, a warm welcome to you all. We have uh, here this evening a very unusual uh, collection, maybe even a constellation. Um, I don't think we've uh, ever done this at the, at the Open University before, and indeed I can't think of any other universities that have done uh, three at a time like this. Um, I, I'm quite sure it's going to be an enormous success, and I, I, I commend the courage of the, of the three inaugurees for trying something different. Giving us uh, the benefit of their considerable wisdom on the topic of identities, rationality, and the uh, psychosocial are, of course, Professor Margie Wetherill, Professor Wendy Holway, and Professor Anne Phoenix, and I'm going to introduce them briefly in turn. Margie Wetherill is the Open University's Professor of Social Psychology and the Director of Economic and Social Research Council Program on Social Identities and Social Action. Her first degree was obtained in New Zealand, native New Zealand, um, and from the University of Auckland. After being awarded a Commonwealth Scholarship for doctoral studies in Britain in uh, 2000, <laughs> however great you look, darling, it couldn't have been too far. <laughs> after the award and for, her <laughs> <laughs> and for her doctoral degree, she undertook work on group processes and group polarization at the University of Bristol. She went on to lecturing at St. Andrews University and finally joined the Open University in 1988, where of course she has gone from strength to strength. Professor Wetherill's research and the associated publications examine natural language use and the implication of patterns in people's talk for the study itself and identity, and that's resulted in two ESRC-funded projects on ethnicity and racism and on masculinity and studies of men's identities. She's currently co-editor of the British Journal of Social Psychology and in 2003 appointed as the director of the ESRC program on social identities and social action, a six-year, four million pound project. Wendy Holway is the uh, university's professor of psychology and co-director of the Research Centre for Citizenship, Identities and Governance. She holds a BA Honours in Psychology from the University of Sheffield and a PhD in Social Psychology from the University of London, her PhD uh, entitled Identity and Gender Differences in Adult Relationships. Areas of special research interest to Professor Holway are moral subjectivity, gender, sexuality, parenting, and the development of self in family and intimate relations. And that has seen her, of course, publish a wide range of work on those issues. And Phoenix is the Open University's Professor of Social and Developmental Psychology. She was recently named as one of Britain's top 50 public intellectuals. I suppose she's tired of being introduced like that, but I just can't resist it. <laughs> Professor Phoenix's research interests include motherhood, 
and the social identities of young people, amongst other things. These interests have seen her undertake an ESRC-funded project alongside Stephen Cross um, of Birkbeck and Rob Patton of the OU, both here tonight, on masculinities in the 11 to 14-year-old boys. More recently, she has undertaken another ESRC-funded project along with Chris Giffen of Birmingham University and Rosalind Krogham of the OU on consuming identities, young people, cultural forms and negotiations in households as well, as of course, as publishing on a range of issues associated with her research. As you can well imagine, the combined force of these three academics, uh, the, the combined force these three academics have between them has uh, resulted in over 30 recent publications and many, many more articles uh, and chapters. They have made and continue to make valuable contributions to the university's curriculum, having worked on courses such as social psychology, family life and social policy, discourse analysis and exploring psychology. So you can well imagine uh, that I am indeed delighted that these three outstanding academics have found a home in the Open University and that with us over the past four years have been able to undertake work that has crossed traditional disciplinary boundaries. It is the story of the intellectual paths they have travelled and the challenges that they have faced that they will be sharing with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our Well, first I'd like to thank the Vice-Chancellor for her warm and positive introduction. Uh, we've certainly found it a great support in recent years to be at one of the few UK universities with a female Vice-Chancellor. We also want to take this opportunity to thank the OU for appointing us in the first place. We hope that's always going to seem like a good idea. We can't guarantee it, of course. And of course, thank you, a big thank you and to everybody for being here, for braving the snow and the ice. You're really welcome and we're really delighted to have you here today. Now we're going to begin with some joint introductory remarks uh, and then we'll do our, our separate slots and I'm going to start off uh, with a bit of introduction first of all. Okay, now the metaphor of a journey is of course quite a trite one and it's used far too often, including in the title of our talk. But we thought that you might um, forgive us this time because it seems particularly appropriate for this inaugural. Okay, those are our three very diverse origin points. Manchester in the north of England, St Vincent, the eastern Caribbean, Windward Island, and Wellington, New Zealand. And we find it absolutely remarkable, the kind of twist of fate, you know, that the might have been, the accidents, the choices, all the contingencies that have led to us being here together in this same physical space. I mean, who would have thought of that in the 1950s that this kind of moment might have happened now? Okay, so we've moved from those various margins, you know, those various far-flung places to this metropolitan centre, you know, Milton Keynes, you know, 
We kind of think it's Milton Keynes, aka North London, actually. <laughs> and here is a sort of close-up of those three small girls growing up in those places in the 1950s and 60s. Anne was joking, you know, she hoped that you'd be able to spot which, which one she was. <laughs> okay. So Anne and I were children of the colonies. We were growing up in some of the most peripheral places of the British Empire. But of course, we were positioned very differently by race. I'm white, and to paraphrase Tony Baba, white New Zealanders are British, but not quite. Okay, so we're kind of British, but not quite. But I could pass as British long before I was legally entitled or allowed to do so. Anne was legally British long before me. She had a British passport right from the beginning. But for many in this country, of course, black and British is never going to be right and never going to be not quite. So belonging is much, much more complex, we want to suggest. Now, Wendy grew up in the north of England. Until she was a teenager, she'd never even been to London. I mean, to look at her now, you'd never guess. <laughs> But by the time Wendy came to London as, you know, as a teenager, Anne was already living in New Cross. Now, the north of England is certainly more central than you know, the Windward Islands and Wellington, New Zealand. But the gap between south and north, you know, literally only hundreds of miles, still needed to be transversed. It's figuratively much larger. So two children from the colonies, one from the mother country, one black, two white, one social psychologist, one social psychologist plus developmental psychology, and one social psychoanalytic psychologist. But all three of us are women. Now that last shared category and the kind of feminist politics related to it does not erase all the differences between us. But what it does do, I think, is go a long way to explain why the three of us are here together. Anne's going to say a bit more in a moment about why you're getting, you know, three inaugurals for the price of one. You know, we did think about it. It wasn't just fear that drove us to <laughs> sort of cluster together. <laughs> but before she does that, I want to make just one more introductory point. We wanted to begin with our autobiographies, not because we believe that the person has some kind of true essence, and not because that we believe that you know, one can ever understand one's life course, that you come, you know, just in time for this inaugural to some perfect understanding of who you are and where you belong. That's not the case. We chose to be more autobiographical at the beginning. We thought it was important because it's one of the places where you can see most clearly the influence of the social on the psychological. So narcissistic pleasures aside, we began with our personal stories because we wanted to say that these kinds of life trajectories, in the broadest sense, are our shared topic. This is what we research. Now, my particular passion is the study of identity, subjectivity, history, and the practices and processes through which ethnicity, gender, colonial relations, family lives mould the psychological. I find it fascinating, the processes of psychosocial convergence, the kind of social machineries, the conditions of existence, which led to the three of us here being here today. 
We could have potentially been set on very different paths. But in some sense, we've become the same kind of woman, despite those differences, coming to the same kind of formation, psychological formation, as scholarly, academic woman. So I think one of our aims for today is to try and talk more about the kinds of concepts and theories that are helping us understand those identity journeys, identity puzzles, and those similarities and differences. And those puzzles have really touched on some of the most intractable problems in the social sciences. But before you know, we get launched on that, Anne's going to say a few words in introduction as well, and then Wendy. Okay, you, you don't have to clap us in between, otherwise you'll spend a lot of time clapping. Okay. To take the personal story in a slightly different direction, all three of us were lucky to have grown up in a period where mass political identities were being asserted. And for me, black, anti-racist, and uh, the women's movements were all really important in making me feel that I have a right to be here. Where here unites nation, social location, and the academy. Both movements, both sets of movements, black and um, also feminist, have engaged in political struggle, they've forged political alliances, and they've theorized social positioning. So they haven't only been political, they've also been theoretical. And they share ways of thinking about relationality, difference, and commonality that are important to us. And they do that within a skeptical worldview that's important, we feel. It's not surprising then that several academics who lived through those periods took up postmodern, postcolonial, poststructuralist types of theories that are skeptical of taken for granted knowledge. Okay. So you, you think I've gone off on, on um, some rant. What's this got to do with doing an inaugural jointly, as Marty Thomas, I would, would tell you? Well, it really wasn't that we were trying to save money in a sort of buy one, get two free bargain, even though we know that universities these days are frequently financially straightened. It wasn't that. And the university hasn't saved money. I'll, I'll say that immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and as Marty's made clear, it wasn't only that we were fascinated by our separate autobiographical journeys to this same point. But just as mass political movements are collaborative, so is academic work. Now that seems obvious, since disciplines are supposed to progress through careful engagement with previous work. Yet, academia is deeply invested in producing solipsistic thinkers who are given individual credit, credit for personal brilliance. And at the same time, and in contrast, cutting-edge social, psychological, and developmental work tells us that cognition is collaborative, that thinking is distributive and relational, that it's embedded in communities of practice, and that it progresses through situated, not disembodied learning. A colleague of ours from the Faculty of Education and Language Studies, Janet Maiden, cleverly paraphrases the Soviet literary scholar Bakhtin's concept of heteroglossia by quoting the playwright Dennis Potter. And what Dennis Potter said was, the trouble with words is that you don't know whose mouth they've been in. <laughs> and Karl Mannheim, who pioneered the sociology of knowledge, said, it's incorrect to say that the single individual thinks 
he and he said he, participates in thinking further what other men have thought before him. These sorts of ideas fit with our academic practices and with feminist theory. Our different journeys reflect that we are interlinked in what Avtar Bra has called diaspora space. So the triple inaugural shows our commitment to collaboration and recognises that minds are distributed and relational. Our academic careers are only partly our individual achievements. They're also the, the achievements of different and sometimes overlapping communities. This PowerPoint shows just how many people we've written with, applied for research money with, with whom we've collaborated on research, even if we didn't get research money with them. And that number doesn't include all those whose advisory groups we've sat on and who've sat on ours, who've commented on our research. And we want to thank you all. Together, the three of us, we're positioned at what can be viewed as a privileged margin, albeit in different ways. We are undoubtedly in privileged central positions as professors whose work is known within our field. We've experienced moving, both in terms of the areas we study and in terms of um, our, our, our own positions in social psychology, from more marginalized positions to ones that are more recognized methodologically and in terms of content within social psychology. But while the Open University has more women professors than almost any other university in Britain, and while we have, as you've seen, a woman vice-chancellor, and we're grateful for that, we're in a minority even here. At the same time, there are four social psychology professors in the discipline, and all four of us are women. And at this point, I'd like to welcome and congratulate Professor Dot Neal, who became a professor last week. Too late to join with us. <laughs> I probably don't need to tell the audience here that black professors are rare in Britain still. What collaboration does for us then is to allow us to dialogue within differences. And it provides us with new ways of thinking about the multiple power relations in which we're inscribed. It allows us to confront uncomfortable conversations as well as comfortable ones. Donna Haraway advocates the metaphor of cat's cradle as a methodology. It's a game with string that can be played on one pair of hands, but is more interesting, complex, and unpredictable if played with someone else. It seems a fitting metaphor for collaborative, collaborative academic work. And Wendy's going to play some more. Well, without Margie, I don't think I would have come to the Open University, uh, although I was attracted to its mission. Uh, Anne too says that she wouldn't have come if Margie had not been in psychology here. For 11 years, from 1988, Margie pioneered a new area of social psychology, which, as Anne has said, was still quite marginalised. She was supported in this um, by the Faculty of Social Sciences. And I was also attracted um, to the idea that psychology within social sciences, unlike where I was before at the University of Leeds. <clears throat> this faculty context has meant that our transdisciplinary kind of social psychology has been able to thrive. Indeed, Perhaps um, here, 
um, this, new, this new kind of social psychology has a more dynamic presence than anywhere else in the UK. Of course, this is represented by the fact that the three of, them, three of us are all here on this platform. All social psychologists, in the sense that we draw upon wider traditions than our discipline, and also all social psychologists. <coughs> so, I'd like to say a word about these shared communities. <coughs> uh, we come from a number of different places. Uh, these are the places where we have either studied or worked. Uh, before we arrived at the Open University, so that you can see um, that there are a lot of people that we have uh, met and, and continue uh, our links with over the years uh, in those places. Margie worked out that we have 75 years between us as social psychologists. It doesn't half make us feel <laughs> old, um, but no, we have um, made a lot of connections in those ends. And I'd like to add one more group, which is called DAD, that means dialoguing across divisions in UK social psychology, a network including social psychologists from many different universities in the UK, some of whom I'm very delighted to see here in the audience today. Closer to home though, our working connections across teaching and research uh, that we have with other social science disciplines has immeasurably enhanced certainly my enjoyment and fulfillment in this job. It has enabled us all three to be psychologists and social scientists and that might sound obvious to some of you but it's actually quite unusual and for each of those identities to benefit from the other for me personally recently this has been particularly satisfying in my involvement in creating and, and now as current director building the center for citizenship identities and governance here in the faculty of social sciences this draws on the shared transdisciplinary expertise and resources of uh, about 40 researchers in the faculty, many of whom indeed share our interest in identities. And uh, coming closer to home still, amongst the three of us, we co-supervise PhD students, which is a wonderful learning experience as well as teaching them. With others, we produce a social psychology course. We share debating platforms. We work jointly on research plans and projects. We also go for lunchtime walks, having evening meals together, stay at each other's homes. We talk about our lives and those of others we jointly know. This is a, a much underrepresented vehicle for social psychological understanding. Social psychology is important to hang on to. Despite its poor reputation in social sciences, that's a hangover from when its perspective was highly individualistic. It's important because of all disciplinary areas, it asks what is the relation between people and the societies they inhabit? It's thus a necessary bridge between these areas that too often are pursued in isolation of each other. Historically, it has used a model of a basically asocial individual with social influences being treated as separate and out there. And to correct this tendency for the last 20 years, the new critical social psychology has insisted on the many ways that people are products of their experiences in social worlds, past and present obviously, but also anticipated future. And because of the pervasive dualism of social science explanations, individuals separate from a society which is out there, the challenge has been and remains to explain agency, people's creativity and resistance to social conformity. 
as social psychologists, all three, from our somewhat different perspectives, we each grapple with the challenge of explaining both the thoroughly social nature of selves and identities and the uniqueness of people's ways of living and making meaning of their circumstances. I'd just like to say a word about the organisation of the rest of the event um, before I hand over to Margie for the main first part. You probably know it's in two parts, each three quarters of an hour, with a half hour tea break in between. In the first part, we each take 15 minutes to talk about the main concepts around which our work revolves, our shared psychosocial and relational approaches to identities. In the second part, we focus down on the empirical work that we do. The idea is that this structure enables us to be both general and specific and to talk about and illustrate our similarities and our differences through a dialogue within differences. So Margie's going to start us off on that main part. Okay. A couple of weeks back, there was um, a thought-provoking article in The Guardian uh, in which a number of leading scientists were asked to predict what will be the next set of major scientific discoveries. So what's coming up next in science? And here are some of their answers. So Steven Pinker said, we're about to verify the astonishing hypothesis that all our thoughts and feelings consist in physiological activity in tissues of the brain. And V.S. Ramachandran said, the next revolution will be understanding the organ that made all the previous revolutions possible. Your mind, your ambitions, your love life, even what you regard as yourself, all of it is the activity of little wisps of jelly in your head. <laughs> okay, now if you're a social psychologist preparing an inaugural lecture, <laughs> this is not you know, the thing you want to read, really. So if that's the case then, our stock and trade, thinking, feeling, people's love lives, all just wisps of jelly. You know, were we looking in the wrong place all the time? Is social psychology about to be completely swallowed up by neuroscience? Well, I don't believe so. And what I want you to do is to hold those quotations in mind while you look at the next sequence. Because I'm going to move now from the highbrow, the guardian, to the lowbrow. I want to show you a clip from reality television, the Big Brother Series 3, produced by Indymore for Channel 4. Now, the transcript of this fragment is on that handout that Kerry so kindly sort of passed out. So you want to follow the words while you watch and listen. Can I have buns? Is that your job? Mm -hmm. Let me know that I'm going to pretend when the guys are on tours. Do you want to win? No. Because I know two people, one of them, they know called Ben. He's one of the people that like buns and then he goes for tours. And the other one, Will, he actually works in the boat and he says he's got a wicked job because when he gets drunk, everything's in there. Is that one of your jobs? No. Which one, then? I'm going to shoot in the last time I'm back in the boat. I can't do that in the 10th, I can't do that. No, you're on work on Cambridge, so you're off to Cambridge. 
more than features or properties. So it's what people do with the wisps of jelly that is so interesting and which I think can never be explained through the study of neurons under the microscope. But real life presents a, a, you know, a massive challenge to the social psychologist. I mean, how do you study such effervescent stuff? Where is the order? Every kind of science needs some sort of order or pattern as its foundation. Where is the order and pattern in that kind of real life stuff? Now what I want to do in the rest of this 15 minute slot is just to reflect briefly on where we are with concepts of thinking about this more than physiology level of analysis. And I'm going to contrast two kinds of answers. First, an answer which seemed to me to be cutting edge in my 20s when I was working on social identity theory at Bristol University, but which now seems to me misguided. And second, the current conception, if you like, a kind of relational ontology to which all three of us subscribe. So the first answer to those questions was what I want to call a kind of social individualism. And those of us at Bristol during that exciting period when we were all working on social identity theory in the late 70s, early 80s, we thought that we were more radical, you know, more political, more social than any psychology that had ever been before. But actually I think our social psychology was still deeply rooted in the individual. So you were looking for the social, for the patterns, for the social order in the individual. And this, of course, is not surprising. I mean, psychology as an intellectual enterprise grew out of the liberal enlightenment project. It emerged just as the notion of the sovereign individual was being most firmly established in liberal humanism, in Protestant thinking, and in the philosophies of Leibniz, Descartes, Hobbes, and so on. Social psychology simply built on those foundations. So when we were in Bristol, if we'd looked at materials like the Big Brother, in fact we were doing experiments, but if we had done so, our focus would have been on the individual, Jade and Spencer, as the most visible unit of analysis. And we would have seen the social as kind of packed into them, packed into the individual. Now there's a quote from the novelist Robert Musel which I think very nicely illustrates what I mean by this packed into the individual ontology. Musel was actually writing in the period just after the First World War, but I think his comments are sort of prescient for the social science which developed later. And there's, some, there's metaphors here too which hint at a different, more relational ontology. So Musel says, for the inhabitants of a country have at least nine characters a professional, a national, a civic, a class, a geographic, a sexual, a conscious and unconscious, and possibly even a private character to boot. He unites them in himself, again it's a he, but they dissolve him so that he is really nothing more than a small basin hollowed out by these many streamlets that trickle into it and drain out of it again to join other such rills and filling some other basin which is why every inhabitant of the earth also has a tenth character. That is nothing else than the passive fantasy of spaces yet unfilled. This permits a person all but one thing, to take seriously what his at least nine other characters do and what happens to them. In other words, it prevents precisely what should be his true fulfillment. Now I hope you can see the kind of conceptual frame here. 
The social comes in packages as social roles or identities or characters which neatly stack up inside the individual. So you have a civic, a professional, a geographical, and so on. And I think, like, you know, rather like multiple personalities, they're sort of layered in there into the person. <coughs> I hope you can see in this quote also the kind of problematic and take on the world that this generates. And this is the problematic of psychological humanism with which we also have been grappling. It's the problematic of being true to yourself, that somehow the social is inauthentic and to be contrasted with the real or true self. So Nuzel asks, if the social is packed into the individual in this way, what's left over? How, what can be the basis of serious or moral action? Okay, so that was the perspective, if you like, of my early academic history. And of course, what came after that was the great relational or discursive wave that swept through the social sciences. Relational thinking takes many different forms. You have the concept of practice in Bourdieu's work, for example, the rediscovery by Western intellectuals of those great Russian psychologists and literary theorists, Bakhtin, Voloshinov, and Vygotsky. You have feminist relational theories, social constructionism in psychology, and ethnomethodology, which has been a particular influence on me. <coughs> so what does relational thinking do? Well, the first thing I think it does is it shifts the unit of analysis. As I said, individuals are terribly visible. But what relational thinking tries to do is to change the focus from the terribly visible individual to the in-between stuff. The forms of practice, the unfolding currents of social interaction, and the collaborative and intersubjective accomplishment of social life. The hints are there, I think, in the metaphors that Nuzel uses, that notion of the streams and the rills which trickle and flood through to fill one person and then some other person. The flow of social exchange, the movement of material back and forth into subjectivity and collaboration. Okay, so that's one change, I think. You had a major shift in the unit of analysis over the time that I've been a social psychologist. What else has changed? I think what's also different is our view of the scale and size of the social. And in social psychology, at least, that scale has reduced, got smaller. So in discursive psychology, we now study the more molecular, the more fleeting, the fugitive, the smaller pieces, the finer grain, the incoherent, variable, fragmentary, and fleeting, rather than the big set pieces of social life. And we say that those are just as ordered as those big social identities and social roles. A third thing that's different is the concept of order. We have a different understanding of that now, what Bourdieu calls the peculiar logic of practice. Ethnomethodologists, in my view, have probably done the most to try and clarify through their reworking of Wittgensteinian ideas what that form of order is or what that logic is. So it's a move from the analysis of causes, the investigation of patterns which are rule-like without being prescriptive, normative without being determinate. Practice is about people's methods for knowing how to go on in social life. And those methods are reflexive, intersubjective, and open-ended, with a could-be-otherwise kind of quality. 
method, of course, is a truly inspired and excellent term to use here because methods are collective accomplishments. They're logical but flexible, flexible, potentially self-conscious but frequently unconscious and habitual. And then finally, if we come back to the individual via this relational detour and to what Dorothy Holland and Jean Lev have evocatively called history in the person, we see something different there also. The person becomes, as Buckteen puts it, an orchestration of fleeting and fugitive voices, organized partially through methods and practice and through the personal practical principles of life history. As Musel hints, the person becomes seen as a location in the collective stream, in his words, like a drop of water through which the energies of the whole pass. Okay, so that's what I wanted to say about relationality. But I wanted to end this section with two personal acknowledgements. Because I have to confess that although you know, I'm an enormous fan of ethnomethodology now, that wasn't always the case. I took an awful lot of persuading, an awful lot of arguing and thinking went on. And the person who did that persuading was, of course, Jonathan Potter, my main collaborator during those years. Now, Jonathan's just told me that this book, which we did together in 1987, has now got over a thousand citations and it's still in print. And I think that's a real tribute to his far-sightedness, that he could see this relational wave coming and together we could write about it back in the mid-80s. Now, the second acknowledgement that I want to make is that a psychologist always, always has to learn something about the macrosocial. You know, it's our big weakness that we don't know about the macrosocial. And luckily, when I came to the OU in the 1980s, I was exposed to some of the most exciting, you know, big picture kind of thinkers in social sciences at that time people really working out that territory between Marxist theory and the new postmodernism. Take a look at this. <laughs> okay, now this photo <laughs> is of an even earlier period in the history of the social sciences faculty, but you might, you know, you're about to pick out some of the faces. And I want to mention just a few particular intellectual influences. So we've got Stuart Hall in sociology. John Clark in the corridor, you know, goodness knows what discipline you belong to at that point, John. Both of them in the back row there. Uh, and later for me, there was Janet Newman, Gail Lewis, and Paul Jugay in different corridors. And then on the D103 course team, I learned just so much from John Allen and Doreen Massey in geography, Viz Brown in economics, David Coates and David Held in politics. Uh, and of course, I learned an enormous amount from Doc Neal, who was in the office right next door for all those years, and for whom I learned how to be an OU academic. Okay, now Ingrid Slack also in that photo, which I'm particularly delighted about, as she is a, a particular friend. And of course, there's everything I've learned from Anne and Wendy also, which is why it's so wonderful to share this event with them. Now, not all of these people are fans of ethnomethodology. <laughs> I've tried. <laughs> have not been persuaded. Some of them quite like relationality though. And shortly you're going to hear that Wendy's got a very different take on relationality from the one that I have. And Anne's got a, a way of configuring identity which pulls together yet other very exciting intellectual resources. I'm going to hand over to Anne now, take over.
Well, I want to follow on from Margie's discussion of the relational ontology of social psychology by thinking about some of the epistemological issues that underpin our work on identities here. Now, the Open University has a very long track record of producing course modules on identity that are internationally recognized and also of doing research on identities. And that reputation has been augmented by Margie's becoming the Economic and Social Research Council's uh, program director for the identities program. So it's very fitting that all of us are so interested in thinking about identities, and as Wendy will say in a moment, subjectivities as well. What I want to do in this part of the inaugural is to explore some of the main issues we address as we study identities and to raise some questions of difference between us. I don't expect you to read this. This is just a collage of some of the ways in which people, people think of identities and theorize it. Now, William James, the brother of the, the more famous Henry James, put identity on psychological agenda in 1890. And when he did so, he said that it was the most puzzling puzzle with which psychology has to deal. He also said that people would not agree about how it should be, be theorized and whether it should be defined as fixed or as more fleeting. More than 100 years later, that area of debate and, and disagreement still persists. And it roughly follows the debate that exists between those who are more realist and those who are more social constructionist. Margie said just now that a relational social psychology deals with the incoherent, fleeting, variable, and fragmentary. This certainly fits with a psychosocial relational view of identities. Our view of identities is that they're not singular, coherent, and centered. And when we think about identities, they may seem rather esoteric. I mean, looking at these range of theories, it may seem that they have nothing much to do with everyday life. But identity certainly has practical relevance. And the next three PowerPoints will show, first in this one, that the way in which we theorize identity has implications for the rights that accrue to individuals, and in this case, for the rights that accrue to children under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And then we see here that the ways in which we theorize identity has implications too for the people who are accepted as allies. In this case, Gary Young in his article is, is talking about the debate about whether the Irish can be said to be black, okay, which at various times has waged more strongly than other, or should I say raged, perhaps not raged, just waged. Um, the way we theorize identity also has consequences for how comfortable a nation feels. And here, Linda, Linda Colley is discussing the ways in which, with the passing of empire, British people feel less secure in a British national identity. So how we theorize identity has political and social consequences, and consequences too for social policy. For example, the psychoanalyst Eric Erikson, who coined the term psychosocial in the middle of the last century, thought of the fact that some young people pass through a stage where they're likely to be particularly cliquish and to exclude other people, other, other people um, from their cliques to be particularly nasty to outsiders. He saw that as being the result 
of their defensiveness, defending themselves against fears of loss of identity. Now, from an Ericksonian perspective, then, it would follow that if you think about identity in that way, you may not like what young people do to others, for example, in terms of racism, but you'd see it as a natural and temporary phase and therefore scarcely requiring intervention. But if instead we view cliquishness as discursively produced, we may seek to understand the ways in which talk about groups circulate in society and the ways in which they're taken up and resisted by particular young people. Those resistances might well form the basis of uh, what we might do to try and disrupt their discourses. So they might provide opportunities for disrupting ne negative treatment of other people. Alternatively, Sara Ahmed argues, drawing on a post-colonial approach, that particular differences come to matter as effects of power relations. Power relations are central to them. She argues that stranger fetishism leads to racial others being blamed for causing uncomfortable feelings. So they become the problem, they become blamed. And unlike Ericsson, she argues for an oppositional politics to othering, an approach that I think offers both theoretical and political possibilities, and that I'm much more inclined to. Well, from what Martin said, and from what we do here at the Open University, we believe firmly that the psychosocial means that the psychological and the social are necessarily intertwined. And if that's the case, I would argue that one test of a relational psychosocial epistemology should be that it's possible to see the more broadly social in the minutiae of everyday interaction, in the microsocial, and vice versa. Now, that's not an uncontroversial assertion, and it's not because one branch of discourse analysis, that, and Marjorie will discuss discourse analysis in a moment, but one branch of it would argue strongly that we shouldn't go beyond what people themselves are saying and instead focus on what the analyst brings to the analysis. So in other words, researchers' concerns should not be the main focus. And Wendy's theoretical commitments would caution us against a focus only on interaction, on the grounds that that's insufficient to understanding unconscious processes, for example, and she'll talk about that later as well. But what I want to do at this moment is to give a brief example from a study that Barbara Tizard and I did on the social identities of black, white, and mixed parentage young Londoners to show, as I would argue, that the macrosocial and the microsocial are inextricably linked. So here, these young people who are of mixed parentage um, are talking about the ways in which they don't want to call themselves black necessarily, uh, and they say things like, I mean, lots of people have said if you're mixed race, you might just as well call yourself black, but I feel that's denying the fact that my mother is white, and I'm not going to do that. Okay? Recognition here, as far as the white person is concerned, black is other. So that's what's made me realize I'm black, so that being other has made them realize that they're black. Somebody else, I just say I'm half caste if I'm around, you know, my friends. But if I'm talking to someone like yourself, I say mixed race. And what the young people in that study knew quite clearly is that mixed parentage is subject to social disapproval. So their claiming of mixed identities when they did was in opposition to attempts to restrict their identity claims. But it was also, as you can see here, in relation to their parents and how they think of them, 
and to recognition that blackness is other. I would argue that societal discourses were very clearly evident, not just in these accounts, but in many others that we had. And even though they weren't determined by the social, and that there was no essential mixed parentage identity, you can see the macrosocial in the microsocial. The young people were reflective about their identities. They talked of them as situated. They recognized that they performed different identities at different times and in different settings. And their stories, I would argue, fit with what Jerome Bruner talks about when he says that identity is narratively constructed. The stories that we tell ourselves and other people construct our identities. And those stories are simultaneously individual and social. They're personal and canonical at one and the same time. So part of what I like about psychosocial relational approaches is that they enable the analysis of the situatedness of identities. They enable us to see contradictions in them and the complexities that are produced when identities are transitory rather than fixed, as Maggie said. By way of contrast, a Google search for identity produces numerous entries on identity fraud. And while this may seem certainly irrelevant to academic study, it indicates just how reductionist are some of the ways in which identities are socially recognized in everyday interactions. And this is not confined to thinking about identity fraud. It also is relevant, for example, when immigrants are discussed in essentialist ways that reduce them unfavorably to their migrant status as if, as if that constitutes their only identity position. In much the same way, this nursery rhyme reduces the woman's identity to the look of her petticoat. There was an old woman, as I've heard tell. She went to the market, her eggs for to sell. She went to the market, all on a market day, and she fell asleep on the King's Highway. There came by a peddler whose name was Stout. He cut her petticoats all round about. He cut her petticoats up to the knees, which made the old woman to shiver and freeze. When this little woman first did wake, she began to shiver and she began to shake. She began to wonder and she began to cry. Oh dearie, dearie me, this is none of I. But if it be I, as I do hope it be, I've a little dog at home, and he'll know me. If it be I, he'll wag his little tail, and if it not be I, he'll loudly bark and wail. Home went the little woman, all in the dark. Up got the little dog, and he began to bark. He began to bark, so she began to cry. Oh dearie, dearie me, this is none of I. Well, rather than reducing identities to essences, a psychosocial approach recognizes multiple conditions of possibility for identities, including historical and geographical location, current practices, and as Erickson and Stuart Hall suggest, it also includes anticipation of the future. And this example that we've seen pass back and forth a few times now um, comes from a study that I'm doing very slowly with Leandra Box of REU, a study that is of adults who were left in the Caribbean by their parents when their parents came to Britain and who later rejoined them. Now at the end of this quote from Frank, he says, I've made a conscious effort to not approach with my kids that kind of way. And the point about making conscious efforts to be different from his father is that Frank's identity is partly a project 
as Foucault suggested. The, ide the idea of identity as a project is perhaps best demonstrated when people use their, their own bodies to uh, make projects of them. In other words, to follow fashion, to experiment with new identities, to rebel, or to cross boundaries of gender, nation, and culture. And in a study that Chris Griffin, Rosalind Krogh, and Janine Hunter and I are doing, we found that young people very much use fashion styles in this way as part of their identity project to express individuality and, be and belonging, but also to express difference from other groups. Well, this takes me to an, an area of debate because identity projects are frequently conscious and they can be explained by people often in their identity narrative. As Margie will make clear later, psychosocial approaches require a detailed analysis of talk since this is the medium through which experiences are made meaningful. But there's disagreement about whether or not the analysis of language can tell us all we need to know about the processes that produce identities and social meanings. Stephen Frosch argues persuasively that there are some things that can't be said because they're not open to conscious scrutiny. In order to explore things that are not open to agency and consciousness, various researchers, including Wendy, have turned to psychoanalysis for their explanations. I think that Althusser's notion of interpolation as a way of naming the unconscious process by which we are hailed or recruited into particular ways of understanding the world and ourselves is useful here. The three examples on this PowerPoint of Kitchener's appeal and of two um, adverts are clearly designed to interpolate the viewer, to hail them into the message for obvious propaganda reasons. Aftar Bra gives a vivid example of interpolation that comes from research rather than from uh, adverts or Kitchener. And here, just to read a little bit of this, one white mother whom I interviewed in 1976 has said to me, where did they come from, my father used to say. They were here and then the shops opened up. The they in this location signified Asians. She means people like me. I thought to myself, feeling acutely othered. And that's an example of being interpolated into an identity position that one hadn't anticipated being interpolated into in that particular situation. It's one thing to identify emotional processes and another to explain them. Wendy considers that psychoanalysis provides the answer. Margie, on the other hand, agrees with Edward that emotion discourse emotion discourse is a feature of talk about events rather than being unconsciously produced. And although Margie is concerned with discursive construction from within, that's to say with how there are internalized voices that produce depth, produce personal character and life history, her approach is really rather different from Wendy's. And those issues are at the heart of epistemological debate. Can we decide between these competing explanations? Do they, do either of them, or do both provide adequate knowledge? Again, consider an example from the social identity study that Barbara Kizard and I did. Again, I'm just going to read here one bit of um, uh, one of these quotes. And at the end, this young woman, talking about an experience of racism, says, I don't know whether it's because it's a chapter that I would rather not remember. So on purpose, I've blocked it out or whatever. 
Now her account can be discursively analysed as an example of what Margie calls educated discourse being used to ward off troubled subject positions. It can also be seen as Billig's view, in Billig's view that people use rhetorical devices of various sorts in order to repress unwelcome thoughts. You're doing it in language, you're repressing thoughts you don't want to have in language as you speak. But alternatively, Wendy would agree with Billig, but would stress with Stephen Frosch the significance of emotions that do not find expression through language. Such unconscious emotions, she would argue, have powerful effects through unconscious dynamics. I would suggest that a both-and perspective is more fruitful than an either-or perspective here. And that's not only because I'm, I'm weak and watery and just like to go between things, or just because I think that both cases have something to recommend them. But as we've each argued already, the social and the psych psychological are not binary opposites. So what we think of as the unconscious is not separate, I would argue, from the macro-social. And Wendy's now going to develop the argument for, psych for psychoanalytic interpretations before Margie moves on to discuss more discursive interpretations. <clears throat> so this is sort of both identity and subjectivity um, within intersubjectivity. And perhaps it's because I've been involved in the start of the ESRC Identities Programme, but lately I've been questioning the precise meaning of the term identity in my own work, in students' usage, and when reading the social science literature, it's, it's an incredibly common usage at the moment in social science. And identity is a portmanteau phrase, um, so precision is not easy. And from Anne's collage, you will have seen just how many different takes there are on it. But particularly, I ask myself, what's the relationship between identity and subjectivity? Or what's the difference between identity and subjectivity? The two terms have come into the language of social sciences at quite different times. Um, and that it has indicated the influences of, of different um, changing theoretical traditions and borrowings. But the both and principle is highly desirable. Um, as Anne has indicated, it works against the tendency in academic circles to argue against another's position. So both subjectivity and identity. Um, I'm beginning to think that we need to clarify the different theoretical scope of the two terms uh, in order to think how they differently illuminate questions about human agency and social influence. And I look back at some of the titles of my research um, back to my PhD and on, and was wondering when I looked at them, is, have I been thinking about the same thing when I've used these different titles, identity, subjectivity, identities, subjectivity again, have I been referring to the same thing or are they different? Anne has pointed out uh, the idea of plural identities, how important it's been as a resource for political movements in challenging the way that white Western professional men have been taken as the desirable norm of personhood. And similarly, I use the term identities when I'm talking about something that one acquires because of one's multiple positioning, a woman, English, white, etc. These are the identities with which social psychology and sociology have been preoccupied in recent years, increasingly emphasizing their multiplicity has been important. And for example, the title of our research center, Citizenship Identities and Governance, has those in the plural. 
and this usage of identity then, as well as focusing on its situated social nature, emphasises the extent to which it can be performed intentionally through practice and talk, as Margie demonstrates in her work, and the objects we use for identity are identity projects, as Anne has just illustrated on the screen. Aspects of, of identity are intentional and chosen in this work. I agree, but aspects only. I want to supplement the emphasis by taking issue with assumptions that identities are simply socially given and that they can be successfully controlled by intention. And that's sometimes implied in the idea of identity project or the idea of narrative identity, which Anne has also just mentioned. And I want to take issue with that while still agreeing with Anne's tenet of multiple situated and performed identities. And where Margie has rejected the individual as the unit of analysis, I'm only happy if something is put in its place that doesn't reduce to the social. And that's where I have recourse to the idea of subjectivity instead. When I talk about subjectivity in contrast then, I'm referring to something less self-conscious more taken for granted, partially hidden, built up over a life history of experience, relations, meanings, desires, and actions. You wouldn't be able to actually read it on the picture, but it says, uh, as the title shows, what is within is more powerful than what is without. And that's been quite a debating point in those of us interested in psychosocial approaches to identities. Um, Margie and Anne and I all agree that separating inside and outside in that way is not a good way of doing social psychology, hence our shared use of the term psychosocial. But I'm still very interested in the power of what is within, which transforms what is without, as well as being transformed by what is without. And so that actually affects uh, what I focus on considerably in a lot of my work. Now, subjectivity in some ways is that substitute for the notion of the individual. The idea of the individual has been very much depleted by the way it has been used in both philosophy and psychology, and Margie um, illustrated with that brief history um, of, of the use of the individual in, uh, in philosophy, um, how that came to be the case. Um, <clears throat> Those traditions made, tended to make dogmatic assumptions about unity and coherence, the unproblematic separation from those around us, and the possibility of being governed by reason and intention. And so as a result of that, critical psychologists went out of our way to avoid depending on those assumptions and on the notion of the individual. But critical social science was in danger of throwing out the baby of agency with the bathwater of the unitary, rational, intentional subject when it dismissed the concept of the individual, I believe. And so along with my co-authors of changing the subject, I took up the concept of subjectivity to retrieve that baby without the bathwater. <clears throat> In my search for ways to understand subjectivity, as Anne said, I've become more and more persuaded of the value of psychoanalytic theory. Psychology took for granted the idea of an individual, you know, separate from the world, and sociology, by contrast, overemphasizes, I believe, how social forces produce the person. Psychoanalysis decenters subjectivity, that is, it sees the sources of action and meaning 
deriving not just from a person's conscious intention, not just being singular in purpose, but also unconscious, emanating from hidden sources, the product of past, present, inner conflict. These aspects of subjectivity are not easily amenable to world change. That's more what it would feel like from a psychic fantasy point of view. Um, but psychoanalysis does have a tendency to be individualistic too, uh, and it, it's been much criticised for that. It too has been subject to a discursive turn. Um, but the struggle is not to reduce people's actions entirely to inner forces. And there I have to agree with Anne and Margie both. So a psychoanalytic view of subjectivity also needs to be rendered psychosocial. And this is the kind of way I try to do it. In it, I emphasize the way that subjectivity is made up of a whole life history of relations with others, um, internalized idiosyncratically, not predictable. And likewise, a whole life history of meaning, not docilely reflecting the exter external social meanings to be found in language and discourses, but made unique by each person's particular history of desire, unconscious defenses against anxiety, and identifications with others. Misrepresentation of that idea. So there is multiplicity here, but dynamic conflict, and that conflict is part of the struggle for coherence, even if we don't succeed in being coherent. And this, along with social theories about the formation of identity, informs my psychosocial approach to subjectivity. And now I want to move on to the idea of intersubjectivity, which ties in with the relational approaches that both Margie and Anne have already talked about so far. I've said that subjectivity is made up of a whole life history of relation. And to understand how this happens, I've drawn increasingly on object relations psychoanalysis, specifically on this occasion, Winnicottian. Back in 1949, when I was just born, Donald Winnicott famously said that there was no such thing as a baby, only the infant mother couple which is, psychologically speaking, a unit in its own right. At the beginning, you saw me as a baby, but that was only part of the bigger picture. You'll remember that better than me, Mum. <laughs> the continuous... <clears throat> so, the mother-baby couple. And I want to describe a little bit about how I think that that relational unit uh, is actually uh, totally important to the experience of self at the beginning and never actually disappears from view, even though we feel as if we become separate individuals. The continuous appearance, disappearance and reappearance of the mother figure who is familiar to the baby's senses by her smell, voice tone, skin texture and gestures provides the baby with some location in time and therefore some sense of the ongoing nature of its own being, which would otherwise be absent. The infant initially experiences a bundle of sensations disparate in time and space, and it is through the mother's responses to its experience that these bodily sensations are gathered together and a sense of bodily integrity is enabled. Christopher Bolas, another psychoanalyst, sums it up by saying that the infant's meaning resides primarily within the mother's psychosoma. 
and it's not the same as the outside body <laughs> in the infant's meaning. Bolas argues that this is the earliest manifestation of the self, the core of one's being, as he puts it. It's an unconscious organizing process, something that does not belong to the realm of self-conscious awareness. It continues to manifest as the unthought known. That's another a term from Bolas, which he defines as that which is known, but not yet thought. So something else that exists outside language and discourse. The domain of knowledge deriving from intimate early relationships prior to language. And importantly for my purposes, and this is the crucial point, um, in theorizing, for my purposes in theorizing subjectivity, this domain, the unthought known, does not disappear with the advent of language. It's there for all of us as adults. Feminist theory has been influential in questioning the notion of an autonomous, independent, separate individuality that's historically associated with men and with a particular tradition of European philosophy, as Nardley described it. What psychoanalytic object relations theory has helped to achieve is to specify the many ways that we are members one of another in the phrase of Rivière, who was a collaborator of Melanie Klein. I think that dovetails quite nicely with what Margie has said about relationality, using Musil's language of streams and rills and trickles and floods and things. And these other two quotes are likewise expressions of that intersubjectivity, which exists not just in conscious interpersonal relations. These complex dynamics of emotional communication are explored in both their positive and negative implications in the psychoanalytic concept of identification. Margie will illustrate a different usage of the term identity later on in her other part. And Anne has talked in the concept of interpolation about how people are grabbed by the social. As a concept, identification attempts to capture the effect on each party of the actions by both as they unconsciously exchange psychic elements and aspects of relationship through projection and interjection. What I like about that is the way that those two figures are intersubjective and they share an I. The radical implication of the concept of identification is that there is no firmly established boundary separating one person from another where emotional life is concerned and that means every aspect of mental life, including learning and relating. The idea of intersubjectivity thus means more than people being in interpersonal relations, which presupposes two people, always already separate, who relate. Rather, the unconscious flowing of mental states between one person and another that constantly modifies them. That's what I want to emphasize. Our subjectivity, however, is also shaped by our disidentifications, the distancing of disliked, hostile, forbidden, or impossible elements of those with whom we have close contact, particularly in early life, but not solely. Not only may this result um, in the othering of people who are different, but disidentifications also deplete our personalities, whereas identifications create a rich and potentially diverse source from which the self is forged as these identifications are incorporated and made part of us, ourselves. The significance of actual relationships and the social influences on them is shown by Jessica Benjamin 
uh, in her example of how little girls will usually wish to identify with their fathers as well as their mothers. For this to be successful requires that fathers be able to identify with the desires and aspirations of their daughters and not just their sons. She thus illustrates the importance of the other's response to the child, the child's sought-after identification. I like this image because you can see that identifications are not just verbal, but unselfconscious bodily responses to another's vibrant emotional being. Benjamin's point about daughter-father identifications reminded me, when I was writing this, of the tranquil weekend hours I spent as a child dogging the footsteps of my father as he went round the garden, copying his activities and later learning from him quite boyish things like how to tie knots and how to change an electric plug. I still enjoy, enjoy doing all that practical stuff and it's no accident that um, I had that, those early experiences. This is a small example of cross-gender identification and how gender identity is not confined to the idea of being one sex or another. And it also shows how the psychoanalytic idea of identification is made psychosocial with ideas about gender difference when you incorporate those things. Okay, um, we're going to have a break now and um, we've chosen some music um, to, to see us out and over into the break. Um, it's called It Ain't Necessarily So. But in addition to um, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong being a sublime pair of musicians, it illustrates our shared principles of skepticism and the validity of different readings of phenomena. It reflects the principle of a continual rethinking of our own ideas, our attempts to think against our own brain. Thank you very much. <laughs> 